Now I'm on. Okay, great. Gave you more time to find the scripture reading. Joshua chapter 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan and all this people to the land which I am giving them to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I will give it to you just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you, and I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you again for all that you have revealed of yourself and your word and your ways. And God, we are here in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might hear you, be taught of you, and that by your Spirit's power, God, being in subjection to the authority of your word, which is the very power of God unto salvation, that our hearts, our lives, God, might be brought into conformity to your Son. And so we pray, God, that your Spirit's work be done within each of us in this time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We are this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Um, I won't be here next week. I'll be in Quebec for a, a business meeting thing in, uh, with torchbearers. Um, Jerry Benjamin will be preaching for me. Jerry preaches typically for me every year while he's at his hill, and he's at his hill last week and this week. This morning, he's at Faith Bible Church here in Bernie, and um, it was encouraging to meet with um, the pastor there, Tim Ekno, and another pastor from Ohio, there, and their long friendship and, and knowledge of Jerry, and, um, and it was great to see Tim really excited about having um, Jerry with them this morning. And so it's good um, that we can share him, and, um, but he'll be here next week um, preaching for me while I'm in Quebec. Um, we've been looking um, at, at Israel, the ministry of Samuel, here in the first part of Samuel. These are our very um, saddening chapters, 4, 5, and 6 of 1 Samuel. And they are sad on a, on a variety of, of levels, but especially when you look at what the passage I just read in, first, in, sorry, in Joshua chapter 1. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, it says, thus, thus the word of the Lord came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. And already there's just a, a, a tragedy that's in the making here. 
God has established that he is speaking to the nation of Israel through Joshua, who is raised up to be a prophet and a judge. And the nation has acknowledged that in the last part of chapter 3. There is again a prophet in our midst. They know this, they acknowledge it, and now they're going to battle with, it seems to be, no thought of consulting God. It's tragic. And so they, the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. God promised Joshua that this would never happen. He said that to be strong and courageous because God was with them and he was going to give them victory and every place the sole of their foot touched would be theirs to take possession of. And now they are not taking possession and they are being defeated in battle. And they will run in panic for their lives, far from being strong and courageous. I don't know why it's not told us in all detail why they didn't consult God. One reason may have been that they just felt like this was a no-brainer, as we like to say today. There are some things you don't need to pray about because the circumstances speak for themselves. You know what you're supposed to do, so we say. This was a case of self-defense. They're being attacked. Surely God would have them defend themselves. Whatever their reasonings were, they did not consult with God. And we will find out as we move through, especially in chapter 7, um, they, their lives are filled with spiritual corruption, with idolatry, with what God calls spiritual adultery. And so there's no wonder that they're being defeated in battle when they're presuming upon the grace of God, upon the presence of God, not consulting with him, not living consecrated lives, and they're defeated. So they think the answer to the defeat is to go get the Ark of the Covenant. And so they send for it. And here it comes with Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. And they thought this is the answer to all their problems. So in verse 4, so the people sent to Shiloh. And from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now when you... Read about the Ark of the Covenant. It's clear um, in the book of Exodus that God said that I will give my presence to the temple, to the tabernacle, and in particular to the Ark of the Covenant, and I will speak to you from the Ark. So they are equating the presence of God with this box. And the Ark was simply a box. That's all it was. Ornate box, overlaid with gold, but it was just a box. And on top of the box were the forms, golden forms of two cherubs, cherubim, with their angels spread, looking down at the top, which was called the mercy seat. The high priest sprinkled the blood onto the mercy seat once a year, and God spoke to them from the ark. So we can understand that they thought, if we can have the ark, we can have the presence of God. They probably were also thinking back to the days of Joshua, where I just read from Joshua chapter 1, where they took the ark into battle and they surrounded, they walked around Jericho once a, a day for, for six days. And on the seventh day, they walked seven times and they shouted and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. That was the last time the ark was taken into battle. And now they are hearkening back to those days and saying, we want to battle then. 
because the ark was with us, we can win a battle now because the ark is with us. And so verse 5, And it happened as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp that all Israel shouted with a great shout. Probably, again, trying to, to reconstruct what happened at Jericho. Just as they shouted with a great shout, when they, when they walked around Jericho, now they're shouting with a great shout as the Ark of the Covenant comes into the battle camp. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the, kingdom, in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of the mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues. In the wilderness, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. You can see why I said this is one of the saddest portions of Scripture. Word comes about the defeat, the capture of the ark. A survivor went to Eli, verse 14. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the noise of the commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the men said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, How did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. And it came about when he mentioned the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate and his neck was broken and he died, for he was old and heavy. Then he judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was pregnant and about to give birth And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And it came about at the time of her death, the women stood by and said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. Tragic, tragic story. The tragedy of this story is not simply that they were defeated. Tragedy of this story is largely that they have lost their identity and their distinctiveness as a nation. That is the thing that God is pointing out to Joshua in chapter 1. The distinctive of Israel is not circumcision. It is not even the law of Moses. And God gave those things to make Israel a distinct people. But the true distinction of Israel was the presence of God. God was with them. 
Look again back at Joshua. Chapter 1. Verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Look at chapter 3 of Joshua, verse 10. By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that you will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Gergesite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Why is God going to do these things? Why is he going to give his presence to these people? In verse 24 of chapter 4, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that they may fear the Lord your God forever. So God has made Israel a distinct people with his very presence so that all the earth would be filled with the glory of God. And in chapter 7, with the battle of Ai and the defeat that they had there, God says in verse 12, Therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, just like in 1 Samuel 4. For they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. And why can you not stand? Because I won't stand with you. My presence will not be with you, and it is my presence which is the distinctive of your existence. This is the thing that makes you different from all the nations, that God is with you. What is our distinctive? What makes us different as individuals and as a church? I hope that it is truly Jesus Christ. I, Patsy and I watched quite a bit of the Olympics when they were on TV a couple months back. And it was particularly encouraging one evening to watch the interview of two um, synchronized divers. Now, I'm not all that impressed with synchronized divers, um, but what they do is impressive. But what was especially impressive is these two American young men are being interviewed after they um, were in line for a medal. And I think it had been decided they were going to win a medal. And both of those young men said, had we gotten a medal or not, it would not change a thing about who we are. Because our identity is not in winning a medal. Our identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a powerful testimony. Win or lose, nothing changes about who we are. This is our distinctive. Our distinctive is not that we are Olympian medal winners. Our distinctive is that we are sons of Jesus Christ. We belong to him. Just this morning, I was given a letter sent out by the E-Free Church denomination. It is sad. We were written to... And we are told that the 
EFCA president desires to see one EFCA in which all of the local churches, districts, national and international ministries work together toward common ministry objectives on the basis of shared values and trusting relationships. That is not a distinctive. Who wouldn't want that, secular or Christian? Not a word of the Lord Jesus Christ being our head and our distinctive, but that we have one ministry objective, one shared values, and one entrusting relationships. The letter goes on and speaks about the vibrant ministries at some of our churches. A hundred people were in attendance at two first-time startup churches. 333 people were at the first Sunday of another church. And another church had a great launch with a packed house. And then later, they've just hired a full-time staff members helping our churches improve ministry effectiveness with multiplication at every level. And then, of course, the final paragraph is funding is vital. An appeal for money with the last paragraph. I love the Ephraim Church. This is part, we are part of it. But it is a sad day when our distinctive is multiplication of churches, when our distinctive is a shared common value. The distinctive of the body of Christ is Christ. And if Christ is not, as Jerry Benjamin will probably say again next week, not just prominent, but preeminent, then we have nothing to share. And as Madrian Thomas used to say about torchbearers, it's Ichabod. The glory has departed. If we become about anything other, as good as it may be, other than Jesus Christ, there is no distinctive. We've become like everyone else. Just to read from Major Thomas. Truth is as timeless as God himself. It never changes. It may be forgotten, neglected, perverted, opposed, rejected, counterfeit, or displaced, but it never changes. It is not an emphasis, a concept, a party line, nor merely an option. It is an imperative. God created man in such a way that the presence of God as creator within a man as creature is imperative to his humanity. Israel's distinctive was the presence of God. It was imperative to their national distinctiveness. Man in normality is to be distinguished from the animal kingdom by a quality of life and behavior that can have no possible explanation apart from God himself in the man. Israel was to live in such a way that there's no possible explanation for their existence other than the presence of God in Israel. This fact is truth. It is not subject to debate nor dialogue. It is not an option to be offered. It is a fact to be proclaimed. Truth does not evolve over the years any more than God evolves or Christ evolved. In assuming our humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ as creator chose to play the role of creature. As the God who made man, he chose to be the kind of man that he as God had made. In declaring that he as God without the Father could do nothing, Christ demonstrated the truth that he has always been, that has always been true, that we as men can do nothing without him. 
that the Father as God then was as indispensable to Christ as man, as Christ as God now is indispensable to us as men. He is the distinctive. He is our life. He's not just the reason we live. He is life itself. And without Christ, we have nothing. Any departure from this truth, in other words, for anything that is good and noble, any departure from this truth is a corruption of the mind and has its origin in the subtlety of Satan. It is a departure from the simplicity which is in Christ and constitutes neo-evangelical humanism. Where the time to come when by mutual consent the members of the fellowship were to depart from this which is the true substance of our faith, then God would have written over the fellowship of torchbearers as much as so much over of what purports to be Christendom, the word Ichabod. The glory is departed. I can't imagine what it would have been like, been like to have been a part of Israel and to have been led by that fire at night in the cloud by day. To have stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and seen the entire mountain top engulfed in flame because of the presence of God. And when God spoke, it so terrified them that they said to Moses, you speak to us and not God. There was no denying God's presence among them. And yet they disdained his, his presence. I said these are sad chapters. It gets sadder. Look with me to Ezekiel. This is long after the days of Samuel. And the temple has been built by Solomon. And in chapter 8 of 1 Kings, God has come to indwell his temple. Again, what could be more significant than that? People will come from all over the world to search out the wisdom of Solomon, not knowing that it is God's wisdom. And Solomon will have one task. Simply open your mouth and tell the world that the distinctive of your life is not due to you, it is God. And if God had not poured out his wisdom upon you, you would have nothing that would make you any different than any other man. God is the distinctive. He is the explanation for your life. And when people begin to give you the credit and the glory, point through your window to the temple right across the courtyard and say, God is the reason for me and God is the reason for Israel. God was dwelling in the temple. Incredible. And yet people came to search out the wisdom of a man and they left impressed with a man. So look at this. This is long after Solomon but it is in large part due to the idolatry that Solomon introduced into the temple. In Ezekiel chapter 7, just going to just, I'm sorry, chapter 8, just going to highlight a couple verses here. Verse 4. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw in the plain. The glory of God was in the temple. Chapter 9, verse 3. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. Why? Because Israel has introduced idolatry into the temple itself, into the holy place they had brought idols. And God said, 
I'm leaving. And he's withdrawing his presence. In chapter 10, verse 4, the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. And the temple was filled with the cloud. And the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of God because he was leaving. In verse 18, then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And when the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in, the side of the, in, in, the, in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the gate at the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. In chapter 11, verse 22, then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from their midst of the city and stopped and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. So you can see what's happened. God has lifted his presence from the temple, lifted his presence from the city, and now he's over the Mount of Olives and he's getting ready to leave Israel and go back to heaven. And the glory of God will not return again until Jesus walks this earth who is himself the glory of God. And once again, they will refuse to acknowledge him for who he is. And he will depart. And he will not come again in that way, physically present to the earth, until Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until that time, Acts chapter 2, the glory of God is within each of us. I don't believe that God will withdraw his presence from the child of God, his indwelling presence. But I do believe the greatest distinctive of any Christian is the presence of the living, indwelling God. This is the one thing that sets us apart. There's nothing greater. It's not spiritual gifting. It's not money. It's not popularity. It's not... It is the presence of the living God in the Christian and within the people of God. With Israel, it is clear that God is no longer their first thought, no longer their grounding thought, their grounding principle. Maybe it was a matter of just falling back to common sense. Certainly they were falling back to previous activity of God, spiritual precedent. 4,000 die. The ark is sent for. Another 30,000 die. The ark is taken into, in, captured, and the glory of God, as it were, has departed. No one's inquiring after God. It is a mechanical repetition of, pre, of, pre, of precedent. It is a religion based upon principle, procedure, method, and precedent, and not relationship, not the person of God. They are doing what has worked before, but not consulting God with what he wants to do now. I spoke to this some last week 
This is why, again, we need to be so careful that when we speak about Jesus being the head of our lives in the head of the church, that we are serious about that. And that we're not just doing what was done before because it worked or because God blessed. There is, it is hard sometimes to think of any ministry that has not been influenced by the bigger ministries. And if it's working there, we should incorporate it here. And there's nothing wrong about getting big. And being small is not necessarily being more spiritual. But the answer to every problem is what does the Lord want? Himself and his will, not what we think, but what God would have. Israel is not turning to God. They're turning back to the past of what they've seen God do previously. This is the danger of a godliness that denies the power of the presence of God. A religion without relationship. Religion follows procedure. It follows tradition. It limits God. It makes him small. It wants God for personal gain. But it's not really interested in personal relationship. God dwelt with Israel. And somehow, Israel grew complacent. Accustomed to God being with them. This is astounding. They lost the awe of God in his presence. I've said before, as, as a young boy, I can remember at night lying out in the backyard on a blanket and looking up at the, what I didn't even know how many. I remember asking my dad, how many stars are there? More than we can comprehend. And I felt small. We have a big God. And then to think that that God, in some way that we cannot begin to comprehend, gives his indwelling presence to our puny humanity is awesome. What could be greater? Israel lost the awe of God being with them, in them. They moved from God, a person, the God in their midst, to routine and formula. Life became about them and their needs and not about God and his glory. How did it happen? And you can see the application. How does it happen to us? Because what happened to Israel is all too true of us. People seldom talk that the living God dwells within us. We don't wake up in the morning and think, God is in me, and God is with me, and I get to go this day with God, and there is no place that I will set my foot that God has not gone before me. We're indwelt by God and I think in ways that are much more significant than what Israel was. 
This is our distinctive. And we too become dull to his presence. We live our lives all too often as we think best. Giving honor to anything and everything but God. As I've talked about already recently, in the places that we typically can discern what we are honoring, where we are giving our honor, is our time, our money, and our bodies. We put God among our priorities instead of being the singular priority. We cry to him in crisis, but fail to relate to him personally every day. It's not just about having a quiet time. We can be so disciplined, as we should be. But if it just becomes part of the routine, we again are substituting religion for relationship. We spend our lives thinking, working, planning, and playing with little to no thought of Christ, God, who lives in us. It is not what God intended. And when this happens, we are no different than the world around us. Worldliness is not ultimately about acting like the world in the sense of how we dress and how we talk. Those are just fruits. But how do we think? What is our first consideration? Do I live each day in the knowledge that I am his and his, he is mine? And I am no longer my own, but I've been purchased with a price. And the living God lives in me. In chapter 5 and 6, it says, although God is saying, if the, if the Israelites aren't going to get it right concerning me, I'll at least use their failure to instruct the pagans. And so they take, the Philistines take the ark and they parade it around. They're real happy with themselves. They take it into the temple of their god, Dagon, only the next morning to find Dagon on his face bowing down to the ark. And so they thought, well, that's interesting. So they sent Dagon back up and came back the next morning and Dagon's down on his face again, but this time his head's cut off and his, and his hands are cut off. And so they said, well, this isn't good. And so then they started getting tumors. And um, we don't know exactly what kind of tumor, but it seems to be by the word that's used that they, these tumors were in the groin area. And so some translations, I believe the King James translated them hemorrhoids. Not a pleasant plague to get. But God is plaguing them. And apparently there were also a lot of mice more than usual running around because when they finally, they got tired of, they were, they were shipping the ark around to all the different Philistine cities. They said, we've had it long enough, we're going to share it with you. And so it went to probably five different Philistine cities. And every place it went, people got the same tumors. And so finally they said, we don't want it anymore. Uh, we can't handle it. Let's send it back to the Israelites. And so they put it on a cart and put two cows that, that had um, young calves 
and separated them from the calves and said, we will know that God is behind these plagues if those two cows walk straight down the road and don't turn around and go back to their calves. And sure enough, the cows walked straight down the road and went back to Israel. Israel rejoiced to get it, and they also sent with the ark um, five golden tumors and five golden mice. Uh, probably five representing the number of cities or the number of Philistine kings who had been um, afflicted, and um, the mice probably being um, the cause of the tumors, that, at least in their minds, that they, what God used to give them the tumors. So in chapter 7, the ark comes back. And the men of Kirath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came about from the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim that the time was long, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then it's going to happen. Actually, I I skipped it in the last part of chapter 6. As the ark is coming back to them, verse 19 God struck down some of the men, these are Jewish men, Israelites, of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down, of all the people, 50,070 men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Now that number may be inaccurate. Some believe that there's a manuscript error there in our copies. Doesn't matter, the point remains. Whether it's 50,070 or simply 70, as some would say, none of the Philistines died in their handling of the ark. Isn't that interesting? But as soon as an Israelite looks into it, he dies. It would seem, I can't say this dogmatically, but it would seem that God is simultaneously giving the Philistines greater light concerning God. They are getting a first-hand education into the holiness of God. They didn't have much light to begin with, but they're getting a little bit more. On the other hand, the Israelites, who had much light, are being held accountable for the light that they have. And God's killing them for looking into the ark because they knew they weren't supposed to do that. I think we see a parallel today as well. I think we see today that there are people who do not know the Lord who seem to go without the discipline of God. And that we see those who do know the Lord who many times are living under a discipline of God that the world doesn't know anything about. It's as it should be. God holds those with greater light to a greater judgment. And then in chapter 7, they go to battle again. Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord, and serve him alone. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Asheroth, and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, Gather all of Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And they gathered to Mizpah. And he drew water, and he poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. 
And when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 9, Samuel cried to the Lord, and the Lord answered him. They lament. They're broken. They consecrate themselves. The pouring out of water is probably a picture that we are empty before God. There's nothing that we can do for ourselves. They confess their sin. They cry out to God, and God delivers them, as it should have been from the beginning. I want to finish with just a thought. It is God who defines us and our lives. And if God doesn't, we do. And what does God say about us? And, and what does it truly mean for the living God to be living in us? God defines our being. The world, in many, many ways, tries to put definitions on people. We fall into it. And the definitions are changing all the time. God really just has one. Saved or lost. Saved or lost. Either we are his or we are not. God is the one who ultimately will define the significance of each person. And if we are saved, if we are his, we are indwelt by the living God. God not only defines us in our lives, or we do, but God defines himself. Or we define And again, I I just feel like that on every hand, we see this happening. Where churches and Christians are in the business of making God what they want him to be. We define him. And rather, rather than letting him define himself. I believe that we do that in part when, as I said last week, we get into the track of limiting God to a purpose statement or a vision statement. It's as though we define God and letting God, instead of letting God define himself and define us. The problem is not the purpose statement, the vision statement. The problem is setting up something other than Jesus as the head. When we begin defining our lives, And we do it in so many ways. Based on success, what we attain, so many different things. Then we have already defined God. Think about that. If we are, if we define our lives, this is who I am, this is what makes me significant. We've already defined God by saying he is not what is significant. We have limited him. We have relegated him to a place of irrelevancy, of powerlessness, of being unconcerned, as Israel seemed to be doing. It's not complicated. 
It really isn't. We cannot live without him. We need a savior. And so we come to the savior and say, save me. And we live every day of our lives in the same disposition of humility. I need you, Jesus. I cannot live without you. And the worst thing that could possibly happen to me is that I not know you personally. That I not live and walk with you in a daily abiding relationship. That somehow my heart would just grow cold to you. That somehow other things become more important to me than you do. That I don't listen to your word. Don't listen for your word. And somehow you just become another box that my life is made up of. The box of family, the box of work, the box of entertainment, the box of religion. And not him being the all in all. Nothing could be more tragic. These stories about Israel are sad. That accounting in Ezekiel of God lifting his presence from Israel, I can't think of anything sadder in Scripture. These people that were a light to the world have become like the world because God has left them. And again, I don't believe that God would withdraw his indwelling presence. But I do believe, like Major Thomas, if something other than Jesus Christ is the preeminent thing in our life, then the glory has departed. The distinctiveness of our life, for all practical purposes, is gone. Jesus is in us. But for what end? When we live life by our own ability, common sense, going back to experience, going back to precedent, but we're not living life in Christ, listening to him, responding to him, surrendered to him, then it's just another life lived without God. And that is tragic. What a privilege we have as the people of God to have God in us and to walk with him every day and to be able to share with the world the greatest distinctive of our lives is himself. What a privilege. I'll close us in prayer. God, I know that we will never fully grasp in this lifetime, in these bodies, how significant it is that the eternal, omnipotent, infinite God dwells within our humanity. The God who hung all the stars in the heavens and has named them would condescend to indwell us. But God, I I know that as we allow so many worries and concerns of the world to occupy us, that we do limit you and lessen the significance, God, of you being with us and in us. I thank you that we don't have to strive, God, to bring your presence in, 
We don't have to pray for your presence. We don't have to try and conjure up emotions and spiritual experiences. Because we have you. We are in Christ. And Christ is in us. And I pray, God, that you would fill our hearts with a renewed sense of awe that Christ is in us. And that we do not live in our own strength or ability, but truly from him. And he is life itself. Jesus is the will of God. Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is life. And we thank you, God, that in this we have definition, significance, purpose. And everything else is vanity. In Jesus' name.